Macarion to Stokes, who's onside. Wanda! Here's Sims. It's a good serve this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it! Just a minute to play. That's stoppage time. Here's Letizia. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 82 of the Saints FC podcast. This week, uh, I'm delighted to have back on the show, uh, you may remember him from a couple of seasons ago, we have Mr. Duncan Alexander from Opta. Welcome, Duncan. Welcome back to the Saints FC podcast. How, how are you? How's the last Hello. two years been? Uh, yeah, good. I can't immediately imagine two years as a solid, quick block like that but yeah uh, it's been pretty good yeah um, okay. and thanks for having me back yeah we, we, you're welcome I think last time we had you on the podcast we were talking about your your book outside the box um, mm. a statistical journey through the history of football um, and uh, you know I, I've had a few kind of listeners writing closer to two years ago when we did the, the episode saying that they kind of read that and enjoyed it um, I think most people probably, if they're into football and they're into podcasts, will recognise your voice from as being a regular pundit on the Totally Football Show, um, where I kind of like how your quipping of kind of statistics and dry wit seems to, I, I don't know if it, it seems like that when you're in the studio with him, but audio-wise, you seem to have James Richardson perplexed regularly and kind of almost as a, there's like an audio moment of confusion. Um <laughs> Do you yeah, see possibly. that when he's looking back at you? Yeah, sometimes he does look a bit baffled by by what I've said or a reference I've made. But then, you know, he's very good at referencing uh, older stuff. So I think I think we both, you know, have interests outside football as well, which is quite useful when you're, you know, you can't always just completely reference stuff around yeah. uh, what's happened. So that's, yeah. But yeah, it's always really enjoyable doing the show and... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I've got a, a certain niche, but, you know, people seem to seem to enjoy that. So that's good. Yeah. Um, and so I, I noticed on your Twitter account, which is at Oily Sailor, um, I don't know if, if we'll ever find out why you're called Oily Sailor or not, but you call yourself luxury sports content. <laughs> Quite like that. Um, so yeah. other, than, other than producing luxury sports content, what, what is your day job at Opta? What, how can we describe that to our listeners? What do you actually do? So various things, really. I mean, I guess what separates Opta from uh, some of our competitors is that we've always had teams of people who who go through the data. We don't just produce data. We also, you know, produce stuff from the data. So, uh, for instance, like last night, Monday Night Football, a lot of the pre-match um, content or even post-match looking at how the game went, you'd have seen stuff around, you know, um, Chelsea's XG and, and things like that. That's all produced by our data editorial team. Um, so, you know, I used to be very closely involved with the UK branch of that. Um, last few years, I do kind of more, uh, I guess, ad hoc stuff. So that can be things like podcasts. I do stuff on the Premier League uh, TV channel, which is sort of shown around the world, 
less so in the UK. Um, and then various other things. We do a lot of work with brands as well. So, um, for instance, Nissan and the Cha- Champions League sponsor, and they, you know, if they, they've got like a, a data angle to that. So it's coming up with stories that sort of fit in with, you know, how they want to um, work with, with the Champions League and, and teams and players in that. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty varied, really. It's kind of any any application of data, football data, into, um, yeah, into the real world, I guess. And, and I guess it's kind of, it's sort of translating the data into something a bit more palatable in, for the general fan. You know, I'm not a person with a statistical or maths background, but, you know, over the years I've kind of uh, got into sports statistics, but I still try and do it in a way that, is understandable for the for the normal fan because that's essentially what I am as well. So you know, even with the last few years with new new models like expected goals, expected assists, sequences, carries, things like that, it's still you still have to find a story that that people are going to um, understand and, and kind of engage with. Otherwise, if you just throw a load of numbers at them or a load of concepts, it doesn't matter if they're a fan or even a even a coach or a or a manager or a chairman at a club, they're still just going to be a bit turned off because it just sounds a bit matty. Yeah, I, de- I try and kind of dread to try and think about the amount of times I've tried to explain what XG is to various kind of family members and other football fans, um, and probably to the listeners a few too many times as well. But um, yeah, it's, it, like there's there's an amazing angle that I think that that you bring to the statistical stuff, and it's funny about you saying how you weren't a you you weren't a maths geek. I remember. My interest in maths was pretty much always from football statistics through through to school, which didn't quite carry me to completing my maths A level. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, well, one of the the other things I wanted to ask you about. Um, so uh, we're discussing just before we were recording that I've moved down to Devon, and uh, I now work in Plymouth. And in Plymouth, there's a very big military presence, and I was invited for dinner. Um, with a guy called Captain Richard Harris at HMS Raleigh, which is like the big one of the big military bases there. And also at this dinner was the managing director of Plymouth Argyle Football Club. And mm. we ended up having a little bit of a discussion about the use of kind of statistics and analytics in football. And he was hoping to kind of do a bit more at Plymouth Argyle because they're down in League Two now than perhaps their peers are doing in, in League 2 and League 1 and, and steal a bit of a march. And he mentioned Opta. So but what do you guys actually do for the for the teams themselves? Is that where you're kind of like crunching the numbers into some sort of meaningful data? Or do they ask you for like specific things and then crunch that data themselves? Um, it depends on the uh, on the club and the size of club, really. So we have a we have a specific division called Opta Pro, which is a you know obviously works for professional clubs. We probably work with three four hundred clubs around the globe. Um, now, if it's Manchester City or Chelsea, there who we've worked with both of them for a long time, probably our longest standing kind of big clubs in inverted commas, um, they will just take you know reams and reams of data and then disappear into a locked room with lots of their own employees and and do what they do with it. Um, Whereas a club like Plymouth will, you know, obviously doesn't have the resources of a Chelsea or Manchester City. So they tend to buy um, or, or use a kind of more off the peg uh, solution. So we have kind of almost like different solutions for different size clubs, really. So um, and we're the official data su- suppliers for the Premier League and Football League. So what that means is that 
um, you know, the, the official data for League One, League Two is provided by us. And we, you know, we also sell additional services on top of that. Um, for League One and League Two, it's only since the start of last season that we've collected it at the same or analysed it at the same level that we do for the Premier League and Champions League and stuff. So, for instance, when, when Saints were down in League One, you know, however many years ago, we wouldn't have had things like pass completion or, or any kind of even fairly basic stuff like, you know, uh, tackles and stuff like that. But now that is all available and all the other stuff as well, like expected goals. So it's been quite interesting to to look at the the differences between, say, the Premier League and the lower leagues in England. I mean, I'm a Wickham fan and we're probably one of the, the biggest outliers statistically in terms of, you know, style of play compared to the Premier League. Um, so, you know, that Wickham will, will frequently record past completion rates of sort of 53, 54, 55%, which, you know, is... is the Premier League average is around 80, so that's a that's a fairly big difference. Are we um, the, the Burnley of the lower leagues then, is that? Kind <laughs> of. I mean, of, it's... Is that too yeah. Simpler? I mean, it, yeah, in a sense they are, because the, what Burnley have managed to do, which no one has really figured out, is break a lot of statistical models in the sense of this couple of years ago when Burnley came seventh, you know, they, they only scored... 40 goals in 38 games and they still and they managed to come seventh and they you know looking at all the numbers they should have not been that high but they managed to do it so they're obviously doing something right and yeah and Wickham probably are similar this season obviously we've been in the top two for for most of the season with the one of the smallest budgets in the in the league so yeah th- that kind of proves the point in the sense that fo- if football was as simple as you could crunch a few numbers and work out what was happening then it wouldn't be a very good game because you could kind of solve it pretty quickly and I guess what's great about football and what keeps people coming back and what makes it the most popular sport in the world is it is so unpredictable and you know such a low scoring game you know occasionally you get the odd nine nil as I'm sure you realise but um, (laughs) (laughs) sorry yeah sorry Um, but generally as a low scoring game you can you can be massively dominant in a match and lose one nil or two one or something so you know, it is a it is a lot more unpredictable than most sports, which I think adds to its appeal. And and can I ask some like really simplistic questions here? Because um, so so when when you're kind of like doing this statistical analysis of teams and like particularly the lower leagues, do you have like lots of people watching them, or do people just like watch the tapes and then kind of like generate? I mean, I'm saying tapes, watching the files and then kind of generating that, or do you have kind of like heart rate monitors gps chips in shirts or anything like that i mean it it kind of like baffles me that that there's so much resource going into looking at that to generate the the statistics so it's kind of weird so as official data supplies we'll have people at every game purely to collect stuff you you know getting the referees reports and things like that and obviously if all the technology does fall over you can at least record the goals at the match so you know your soccer saturday video printer will still exist because someone can say you know danny ings has scored after 23 minutes or whatever but all the kind of deep analysis is done off off video files um at various kind of collection hubs around the world we have um and you know we it's kind of a mixture of of computers and humans really it takes sort of two two and a half people per game um half a person because you know qa person will kind of monitor more than one match but but yeah basically uh, uh, someone will 
log all the home team events and some log all the away team events. And there's about 2,000 events per match. Um, so these guys, it takes a lot of training. Most of the people who apply don't get to do it. And the ones that do, you know, take a lot of training before they kind of released into the, into the wild. Um, you know, and that, that kind of raw data is the most valuable thing really, because once, yeah. once you've got that, you can't do all the other stuff without that kind of, without that raw data. So it is very kind of, you know, costly and, and it is a huge kind of undertaking, but it is the kind of bedrock of, of everything we do. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. So, if, so if there's like a, you know, um, someone listening to this podcast who's perhaps a maths or a computer science student or is just like amazing at reading the game how, how would they get a job at opta do you guys advertise or do, do they just like send this evening out there i reckon i've got a knack for this come and give me a try well it depends on the on what they want to do in a sense because if it was just the kind of analysis of the games that's you know often um that has been just kind of students doing it in, you know, weekends and stuff. And although I think our collection hubs are mainly sort of, we've got one in Leeds, we've got one in Portugal, we've got one in South America and a few places. So, I mean, the other side of that is obviously if they are into kind of math and data science and coding and things like that is, you know, there are increasing opportunities for, for those sort of things, both with companies like Opta, um, who I should point out, we're now part of a bigger company called Stats Perform, who are a combination of a company called Stats, who are the biggest data suppliers in the US, and then Perform, who bought Opta a few years ago. Um, Opta obviously the biggest European data company, so they've brought these two companies together. So that's kind of an even bigger organization now. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, what I would say really is to kind of develop um, your own kind of niche um, or at least have kind of social media presence or a blog or that sort of thing. A lot of the people that that have come to work for us in the last few years have, you know, have have done so via kind of creating good work um, out, you know, as amateurs really and oh, showing okay. showing their kind of you know showing their understanding of, of football and their kind of creativity as well. So that's you know that's what I would advise really is to kind of is to develop your kind of skills and uh, and ability that way really. Oh, that's, that's fascinating stuff so many different ways into into football i was i was going to kind of like save all this for the end but i just kind of got a bit sideline there and as i wanted to kind of keep on ask you questions there um say so, I, I mean i guess before we get into the the main of the podcast and a few more questions i want to ask you um i am afraid that we're going to have to speak about the saints burnley game because we haven't done a saints fc podcast since that match um did, did you manage to watch the highlights or any of this game, Duncan? Um, I watched the first 10 minutes live and then um, my son wanted to play FIFA, so I was usurped from that and then <laughs> I watched the highlights. So, I've, yeah. I mean, obviously, I enjoyed the uh, the direct from a corner goal as a, a fan of niche events. Um, yeah. And, and looping back to Wickham, actually, this season I was at game. We beat Lincoln 3-1 and our left-back, Joe Jacobskin, uh, Jacobson scored a hat trick, um, which is rare for a defender to score a hat trick. Never happened in the Premier League. Um, and two of them were direct from corners, and the other one was a direct free kick. And I, you know that that will never be done again. I, yeah, I think that uh, is a pretty niche hat trick. So, so how niche <laughs> is a direct goal from the corner in the Premier League? Well, Westwood scored one for 
Burnley at Anfield last season, again, around this time of year in a kind of windy, with the windy time of the season. So he's obviously a little bit of a, of a specialist, but yeah, I mean, it was not great defending from Southampton, but you know, those sort of goals are, are freaks really. Um, can can you yeah, put I mean, down Storm Dennis for an assist or is that? Uh, well, I, I did actually tweet out the, uh, a list of ha- of uh, assists by Dennis in Premier League history with Bergkamp at the top uh, and Storm <laughs> Dennis as a new entry. So, you know, he's gone, he's a few behind Dennis Romero, I think. But yeah. I think given the way they named Storm, it's going to be quite a long time before there's another Storm Dennis. So. Yeah, yeah. So it could, could be a little while back, well, while before he um, shows his face again. Um, I mean, I, I was also going to play, you know, pin some blame, I think, on Danny Ings and Alex McCarthy for that as well. Um, and it's kind of one of those things. I think if you can see the direct corner within the first two minutes, you kind of you get a bit of a sense that the game might not be going your way. Um, although Ings's equaliser, which I've put down in my notes as a lovely bit of business, gave me some <laughs> hope. Um, I think that was our only shot on target in in the whole game, which I think kind of it, it makes sense. And, and Burnley. Um, they got the winner in, eventually through Vidra, but that's seven games in a row that we've not beaten Burnley. Um, and yeah. we talk about kind of like bogey teams. Like the, Burnley seem to be the team that we really, really struggle with. And uh, I've got a few theories on, on this, um, particularly like our incredibly immobile defence and their use of long balls is not helpful for us. But I wonder if you know why we're so dreadful against Burnley in particular. Um, well, I think in some senses, as, as I touched on a little bit earlier, Burnley are a very unusual team. Um, and the way they play is not typical of pretty much every other team in the Premier League. And I think Southampton are actually quite good at facing teams like, let's say, Arsenal or Man City or, or you know some of the bigger teams because you are very good at pressing, but I don't think that works against Burnley because how can you press a team that's just kind of bypassing most of the pitch? Um, so I think that might explain why. And, you know, in a weird kind of non-scientific way, you do get teams that have that have issues against other teams. And, you know, we it's, uh, it's Chelsea Tottenham this weekend. And obviously, remember, Spurs didn't beat... Chelsea for the first 32 encounters in the Premier League. It took them until 2006 where they beat them either home or away. Um, now, it's not like Chelsea were particularly good for a lot of that period. They obviously were towards the end, but you know, there are, you do get, certain clubs do get into certain kind of spirals against certain other, other teams. So that could be the, the slight issue with, with Burnley for Saints. But I mean, it's a bit of a shame really that you, that you lost because, um, you know, the, the way it's tightening up in the top, Top eight at the moment is, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but you've got like an outside chance of Champions League football. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely one of the things that I was going to bring up. So a couple of weeks ago, you tweeted that Saints would qualify for the Champions League and deserve it. Um, <laughs> having heard you and met you in person, I, I imagine this kind of came with a little bit of a pinch of salt and a slight kind of sarcastic tone to it. But there, there's clearly some evidence based for this because that that is kind of what you do so did, did you really mean this Duncan well this I didn't have any in, uh, preview as to what was going to happen with UEFA and Manchester City but obviously now assuming that fifth place will get you Champions League 
it really is up for grabs. I mean, particularly for someone like Sheffield United, I think. But um, no, I just think uh, looking at the numbers this season, I've, I've been making the case on, in various places, podcasts and stuff that, that Southampton are, you know, they're unlucky. And I think that that Leicester game did kind of just, you know, people who don't watch many Southampton games or, you know, he just glanced at the league table every week or so will will, will have looked at Saints and gone, well, they're just struggling. But all the numbers suggested that you should be a lot higher, as they have in previous campaigns at various points. So, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if you go on a bit of a run over the next month or two. Um, you know, I think definitely kind of top eight is, is within grasp. And I think if you do do that, um, it won't be undeserved. And actually, looking, you know, I promise this will be the last time I mentioned the 9-0, but if you think, it's only happened three times in Premier League history. Obviously, Ipswich went down because they really were rubbish back back in the mid-90s. But Wigan did it at Tottenham, and they didn't go down that season. It's, you know, you, teams can get thrashed, and it doesn't, in one match, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't say everything about the whole season. So, um, and in many ways... That game and then the Everton home game, I think, were, were such a wake-up call for Hasenhutl that you really did kind of change your approach um, after those games. And, and obviously that's led to the to the run that's at least pushed you relatively clear of, of relegation problems. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you bring up the Everton game because... Um, you know, I spent the weekend at, at a birthday party and you know, speaking to friends who support various football clubs, you know, like Norwich and Liverpool. And the, from their kind of outsider's perspective of Southampton, they kind of see a 9 0. I mean, the Norwich fan in particular said he saw the 9 0 and thought, great, that's one less relegation place that I have to worry about. <laughs> Southampton are guaranteed to go down. They're just dreadful. And, and they think it's all like, oh, it's, it's just Danny Ings. They must be dreadful. But then it's just Danny Ings who's saving them. And, you try and explain people, you know, the, the slight there's a bit more nuance to that, and obviously that's the point where their eyes glaze over because they're not anywhere near as interested in Southampton Football Club as I am. But um, it has been a weird season, and, and that Everton game, I think, for many people there was probably just as bad as the Leicester game because we conceded, I think, nearly exactly the same number of as chances um, to Everton as we did for Leicester, yeah. and that was after, you know, after it all happened, you expected us to be picking up as well at that point, and Really, it seemed the turning point was more the international break and then the, the I suppose, the away game against Arsenal where we felt like we really should have won that one. Um, yeah, I mean, since um, November the 23rd, if you did a Premier League table since then, uh, Southampton would be fifth, only three points behind Man City, which obviously City aren't having the greatest season. But, um, you know, that's pretty impressive, really. I mean, obviously, this you know, the caveat to that, as people will often point out on Social media, whenever you do something like this, is yeah, but the season doesn't start on November the twenty third. But it, did, it is, as I always say, it's essentially a form, a form table of your choosing. So you know, there you go. But um, you know, you've lost thirteen points from winning positions this season. Again, you know, it's just it, it could be much better. Um, obviously, it could be it could be worse. But I think I think there's definite grounds for for optimism. And I, I would guess the flip side to that is that. You know, Ings is obviously having a, a standout season and, you know, he on XG and things like that, he is kind of probably overperforming. Um, you know, he's profited, I think, from more errors by defenders and goalkeepers than, than any other striker in the Premier League this season, which, you know, isn't something you can guarantee every year. But it does show how clinical he is. And I think, you know, he's obviously been a 
been a, a player that's impressed various managers at bigger clubs. So I think he's obviously talented. It's just, you know, he's, he needed a kind of injury-free run, um, which he's had this season relatively. So, yeah, he might not do as well maybe next season, but I think generally there's there's signs for, for optimism. And I, and I guess, you know, given where you were in the autumn, you know, mid-table will, will probably be acceptable. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, given where we were in the autumn, I think most people would have bit your hand off for, for mid-table. So, I mean, you mentioned just a, a little bit earlier that you saw things in Southampton in terms of the statistics and the numbers that they were producing that told you that we wouldn't end up in the relegation zone. So so hmm. what, what were you looking at there? So, thing, so we've got a thing called um, sequences. So this is... A relatively new uh, metric but it's based on data we've had for a long time it's just what we've done is kind of linked it together into into a bigger kind of metric so rather than just have a pass then a pass then a shot or however many you know however long you want to go you can kind of c- connect stuff into sequences so you can see it allows you to look at various other other things so you can look at things like teams that um that win the ball back high up the pitch and then what they do with it so if you if you uh, take that as a as a concept. So winning the ball high up the pitch, which is obviously the aim of, of pressing. You know, we've seen it with all the all the top teams in the last sort of five six years. Now, um, if you turn in terms of kind of raw numbers of of high turnovers, so winning the ball up back high up the pitch, Southampton are third this season behind Liverpool, who are first, and Manchester City, who are second. Now you'd expect those two to be top. So basically, Saints are the best of the rest in that, which is really good. But it's not just winning the ball back. Then what they do with it as well. So they've had 28 shots after winning the ball back at the pitch. So they're not just winning the ball back. They're then turning that possession they've regained into an attacking uh, move. And they've done that 28 times. Again, the only teams to have done that more are City and Liverpool. And then if you go one stage further, which is uh, looking at, to winning the ball back high up the pitch and then scoring so obviously turning those shots into goals Saints have done that five times which is more than any other team um, so that really is testament to you know the work rate of the players the coaching and the and the kind of philosophy so that immediately isn't the sign of a team that is kind of really struggling to a create and also a team that you know often what you find with struggling teams is that they they kind of give up a bit. Um, you know, we saw Everton under Marco Silva towards the end. Um, we've seen in previous seasons in the Premier League where, where clubs have really kind of gone into a bit of a, a tailspin. You know, the, all those kind of metrics disappear because no one wants to press the opposition. And that really isn't the case um, with Saints. And, and the other end of the pitch as well, there's a thing called um, PPDA, which is passes per, per defensive action. So all that means is um, how many, on average, how many passes does the opposition have per number of defensive actions that your own team does? Obviously, you know, that can be a tackle or an interception or, or whatever. But so the lower the figure, the basically the, the kind of harder the press or the, 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 the more intense the defending, if you like. So, uh, on that metric, again, Southampton are in the top three. The best team for that are Leicester. Um, Sorry, um, and then City, <laughs> City are second. So, and then uh, Liverpool are fifth actually. Chelsea are fourth. So, 
So Saints, again, really high up in this metric. And these are all metrics that, you know, they, it's not like if you do well in these metrics, you're automatically going to be good. But it's if you're doing well in these metrics, then there's something, things are working to a certain extent. And it's, you know, you, if you play, if you're this committed to your play, then you're not going to lose every week because that's not the way football works. So, yeah, I mean, I never, it always looked to me, Watford as well, to, to a certain extent, you know, both um, Watford and Southampton's underlying numbers were, were far better than their, their league position suggested. Um, and I guess, you know, Watford had that bounce under Pearson, which has sort of tailed off a little bit. But but even so, you know, it's, I think they, I think what I would still say Watford have got a reasonable chance of getting out of trouble. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting you're saying about winning the ball high up the pitch and creating 28 chances and then five of those being goals because... um. I think when you go and watch Southampton in the stadium, you can see really evidently that that's what they're trying to do. And in a way, I'd have I'd have almost expected that to be a bit more fruitful because it seems like such a big part of the game is winning that ball high up the pitch and then getting the goal. But it, basically, I suppose kind of what you're saying is that there's enough metrics that were all looking positive for Southampton that told you that you know they're doing lots of things right in different parts of the pitch that that should end up resulting in in games being won. Yeah. And I think in, in some respects, I mean, obviously, Arsenal gets a bit of the kind of Alpine Klopp moniker yeah. from time to time. But, and in some, I would say, Southampton's numbers this season, kind of reminiscent of Klopp's first, what was it, half, three-quarter season at, at Liverpool, okay. where he, he came in and, you know, very much was kind of, you know, Gagan pressing and all that stuff. And, it, you know, Liverpool obviously refined that a lot over the last few years. And, you know, they, they struggled. They were quite inconsistent that season because if it worked, they, you know, it worked. Approach will bear dividends. And then sometimes, you know, Burnley will just kind of outwit you. And, you know, that's I guess that's the difference between a team in mid-table and a team that's 25 points <laughs> clear at the top is that, you know, Liverpool have kind of, you know, they, they've gone into such depth on... You know, I saw this week someone else, um, Tim Sherwood, having a go at the fact that we'll have a throwing coach as if it was a kind of, you know, an offensive thing to the art of coaching, that, that they would be this, you know, going to this much depth. But, it you know, it's... they They've taken it to the next level, really, in terms of analysis and, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, there's hope for, for other clubs if they if they kind of double down on that approach, I think. Yeah. I, that, I mean, that one is an interesting one. That actually, the um, the chap I mentioned earlier, he's the managing director at Plymouth Argyle now. He'd come from Liverpool. And um, he said that when he was there, they appointed, I can't remember if it was like a, an astrophysicist or some, mm. yeah, there's some kind of like scientific position where they'd appointed some, some guy from a university and, um, you know, it, it just seems like they're, they're I, I know you're a big fan of cycling, but this is kind of exactly how British cycling did so well. They, there's some question marks about maybe some use of yeah. uh, chemicals also helping marginal gains. But <laughs> this this is the whole theory behind Dave Brailsford and why it's so successful with British cycling. As he looked at every single little bit, little thing and, you know, can we get 1% improvement there? Can we get 3% there? Can we get 4% there? And then you put it all together and it gives you enough to, to beat the opposition. Um and by the sounds of things, it sounds like Liverpool are doing that in football now. Um, yeah, to a no, greater absolutely. extent than anyone else. Yeah, they they really are, you know, kind of world leaders now. You know, if you think I saw someone 
tweet earlier today that it's like 10 years since the the Hicks and Gillette stuff at Liverpool, you know, and they really were possibly the worst run club in, in the Premier League. Um, so it shows how you, with careful planning, you can kind of turn it around in a decade. Um, but yeah, they, that whole astrophysicist stuff, you know, that will be a guy that really understands, um, you know, the use of space in terms of physics and stuff like that. Now his, they, what Liverpool are also really good at is they will have people that then take his learnings and his research and translate it into um, into stuff that the coaching staff will understand. Um, and I think this is where analytics has made a big leap forward in the last five or six years is that when it first came out, that astrophysics guy would, would talk to the manager and the manager, like me or you, would be as well, would, was like, would be like, well, what's this? You know, I haven't got a PhD in physics, so yeah. I don't know what you're on about. But what they do now really well is that they'll give it to someone else who'll say, right, let's boil this down to three or four learnings and then give that to the manager and then he can apply that to the to the training. And I think that's that kind of process is um, at clubs where uh, this whole thing works well, that, that's what that tends to be the process. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've been talking about what the PPDA and, and sequences, and um, I suppose the probably the thing that's um, I've noticed from the statistical world the most, and, and actually what I find probably is the most useful indicator of performance is XG. What, yeah. You know, is it going to be sequences? Are they going to be the next big thing that will be out there for public consumption to understand? Or, I mean, how have you found people kind of under, getting a grasp of these? different statistical models because still xg seems to confuse some people though for me it's like well that makes so much more sense than you like saying you've yeah. had 20 shots but they're all from the halfway line you know, yeah yeah five really good ones i know i mean i think as i said, probably said the last time i was on actually you know i think if we if we had a time machine probably wouldn't call it expected goals because i think that's probably caused more confusion than anything else because people here expected and they think it's the kind of predictive thing when yeah. actually if, you, if it had been called uh, or shot quality or something, then I think people would have got their head around it a bit more. You know, people will often say, I think the most common misconception with XG now is someone will say, yeah, yeah, but if Danny Ings is having a shot, he's he's really good at finishing. And if, you know, insert rubbish person at shooting, if he's having a shot, he's worse. So how can you have a model that has an expectation? It's like, well, because all XG is is an average of how a team or a player has done historically you know based on all the shots in our database so there might be 500,000 shots um from in that and you know there might be 10,000 from this scenario from this point on the penalty box with this game scenario blah 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 um now Danny Ings or Lionel Messi or whoever might consistently be above the expected goals but that's because they are good finishers yeah. um and that, that's what people I think people think there's an individual kind of figure for each for each player or team and that you know all, all you're doing is comparing them against the average really and and do you think that is the most kind of useful because they're, they're, they're i think it's um understat they're probably rivals of yours but they put out a premier league table with all the ex expected goals and then they have a table which shows you where would every team be if they actually scored the expected yeah. goals or conceded the expected conceded and i find that tends to be quite a good indicator of form um Although having looked at it, I've looked at um, Southampton, they've got that going back for six seasons and Southampton consistently uh, finished lower in the league than than where they should do, 
based on expected goals. The one exception yeah. in the 16, 17 and 15, 16 seasons where we finished eighth and sixth and that was about right. Yeah, so this is, so Southampton are kind of a very strange team from this respect in that, you know, any team can have a season or a bit of a season where they underperform or overperform. But Saints have kind of consistently, they've kind of lived the same season apart from the ones you mentioned, but varied a little bit. But they do have this kind of consistent um, underperformance, particularly at home as well, which is obviously um, is reflected in, I guess, in your home record, um, which and that I think that's quite important as well, because I think, you know, if you support a team who's really good at home and not that good away, fans are a little bit more accepting because the fans that go to the game are like generally entertained at home. But if it's the other way around, it can be quite hard to to leverage that as an approach. And I think for whatever reason, Southampton have consistently underperformed. Now, you know, I guess you could argue that you had forwards of the quality of Sadio Mane and had to sell them and stuff. But I think, you know, you're probably only a transfer or two away from having a really good, a really good season next season. So, you know, um, and this is where it links back, I guess, to you know, to uh, recruitment, which again, data is now a massive part of and, you know, kind of being ahead of the curve and finding those players, finding the next Sadio Mane, um, who's going to make a really, you know, big impact, um, even if he, he does get moved on after a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so I, we've talked about Southampton kind of like breaking it. That One of the times when we talked about breaking the statistical model on this podcast this season was when Southampton played Newcastle and just looking at them and they have just totally baffled me in terms of their statistics because they they should be kind of rock bottom of the Premier League according to where I'm getting my statistics from. Yeah. Is, is that the same? Yeah, no, where I get mine. Yeah, no, I did a thing the other week, an article about Steve Bruce and Newcastle and, um, you know, just... Again, a bit like they're like the reverse Burnley in a sense. No, no, no. So they're like this, they're similar to Burnley a few years ago, except on a, a kind of reduced scale, in the sense that, yeah, both on chance quality created and chance quality conceded, Newcastle are the worst team in the league. Um, I saw someone tweet at the weekend actually that Norwich and, and Newcastle are essentially the wrong way around, and that given the way Norwich have played this season, they should sort of be around when Newcastle are and, and vice versa. And that. You know, you can't, football obviously isn't that simple, but there is a kind of grain of truth to that. Um, and I, you know, it's a bit, it's a weird one in Newcastle because obviously, you know, the club is very, uh, divided and, and fans, you know, obviously want a new ownership, uh, regime. And, you know, they, most of the fans loved Rafa Benitez, but then you've got the flip side is that, you know, Steve Reese obviously got a lot of, you know, supporters in the media uh, as well. So, I think he's had a a fairly easy ride from the media, but not from the fans, whereas Benitez felt like it was the other way around. But if you remember, Newcastle had a really bad start to the last season. But basically, from from about January onwards, they were, in terms of kind of chance quality and stuff, they were kind of past the second half of the season, which for for the quality of their squad was an incredible achievement, really. Um, and, yeah, I think... You know they possibly will stay up this season, but I mean they they looked pretty abject against uh, against Arsenal at the weekend, and yeah that they, they yeah it's it's one of those ones where you know managers will often get kind of sacked or whatever when they possibly shouldn't be done. I remember Gary Monk at Swansea had a little bad spell, 
And but the numbers weren't that bad, but he he got sacked. But it feels like Steve Bruce is very much reverse, and that he's kind of been very lucky this season. And you know, as I said earlier, luck luck is a massive part of of football, but it, you know, luck doesn't last forever. Okay. Um... So the, uh, another thing I want to pick up pick up on because I noticed you did an article for the BBC recently, um, and you mentioned how you thought that the 2020s might spell the end of the big six clubs. Mm. Um, so uh, the, also the the other sentence I read in this is that only outsiders to break into the top six both came in 2015-16. Leicester as champions and Southampton, who came sixth under Ronald Koeman. Are we really the only two teams that have managed to break in the bob the the top six in the in this decade? Ba- well, based on Lovely. my, it wasn't the entire decade. It was ah. based on my my kind of uh, my I kind of said the big like, six era started in twenty thirteen fourteen or, okay. or whenever Spurs became not back. When basically when Pochettino went to Spurs, yeah, um, and yeah, in that period, it's it's just Leicester and you guys. So, but yeah, I mean it, you know, it, it the the piece was obviously. Uh, partly around remembering how bad the Big Four era was in the 2000s. So if we if we kind of say the the 2000s were the Big Four era and the, and the 2010s were the Big Six era, I think for all the for all the problems with modern football and and you know the wealth disparity and everything, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that the 2010s weren't more entertaining than the 2000s. Um, and, you know, there's obviously various reasons for that. But, yeah, I think Leicester winning the league in, in 2016 has kind of changed things quite a lot in the sense that we've seen Leicester essentially become, uh, you know, a legitimate kind of top four, top six team now. Mm. Um, and I think it is a bit it is a bit strange at the moment because I think the next TV deal could, could change it a little bit because obviously, you know, you get, Leicester's, Southampton's, Aston Villa's, Everton's, you know, who who can outbid and outpay, you know, no sh- nominal European giants like, you know, Inter and AC Milan and whoever. But, you know, that might not go on forever. But at the at the moment, you know, people talk about, oh, is this a, is this a bad Premier League? But, you, look, you know, look at the way that Arsenal and Chelsea weren't particularly impressive last season, yeah, every time they went into the Europa League they kind of just cruised past most teams and got to the final um, I do think the the general quality of the Premier League at the moment is a lot higher than the other sort of big leagues um, so yeah I, d- I, I tend to agree with you there and I also think it's actually quite a lot higher than than perhaps even in, in past seasons um, certainly when I watch Southampton I, I suppose I've been watching at that kind of level for quite a long time now probably since the mid 90s and the way that we play football as a kind of fairly average top division side is pretty exciting and scintillating and, and I don't think we come across many bad teams in, in our opponents really ever um, and you mentioned Norwich there before I think they're a really good footballing team and, and would do well in yeah. many, many past, past divisions so I mean, this is one of the things that I was thinking about this season at the start of the season is that it was going to be a really hard season um, just because there's so many teams that are now what I would consider good. I don't think there's any teams yeah. that are dreadful. There's one team which is incredible. But then I, I think kind of, you know, there's there's quite a narrow field then 
between perhaps yeah. Liverpool and Man City, and then the whole rest of the the division all seemed much closer. Certainly, when I when I watch the games, I feel like there anyone can be anyone in that kind of dreadful old-fashioned phrase. But it, it actually feels like that is the case. Yeah, we've only got 15 points between Chelsea in in fourth and and Bournemouth in in 16th, and Villa only a point behind them. So, you know, and I look at the Premier League this season, and you know, Norwich really good to watch like you said I mean I think the best game I saw last season was Leeds Norwich at Ellen Road which was an incredible match you know Watford you know quite an interesting team West Ham obviously a bit calamitous but amusing Villa have been really good you know Jack Grealish possibly the most impressive player pound for pound in the Premier League this season he's again another aspect of the sequence model that I talked about is uh, we can actually track carries now so not just so traditionally kind of dribbles on the opposite definition has been the number of people you've gone past with the ball. So, you know, if you dribble past three three players, you get three dribbles, essentially. But we can now measure distance that players have carried the ball, so from X to Y. And and Grealish is miles clear of everyone, even even Adama Traore. So, you know, it shows how vital he is to Villa. You know, I mean, probably only Newcastle and Palace who have been, you know, under not only kind of struggling, but also just a bit negative this season. But other than that, you know, obviously Sheffield United have come in and been been amazing. Um, you know, Wolves have, have been good. Everton have massively improved under Ancelotti. Um, so, yeah, I, it is, it's a strange season because of Liverpool's ridiculous lead. But it's also, I don't, there's, no, there's not any games this season where you think, oh, that's, not very, you know, like there were a few kind of Huddersfield games last season. We were like, that's just going to be pretty grim, fair. But you know, even Southampton Burnley at the weekend, it was like, well, that'd be that'd be quite good um, because you know, two teams with distinct approaches and and some you know some good players. So. Yeah, and I suppose a kind of another question: if we're looking at the whole broad kind of spectre of the Premier League. Um, the the Saints Liverpool game where we lost four um, nil, it mm. really felt like we were better than Liverpool for most of the first half. Um, you know, the start of the second half we weren't looking too bad, and then you kind of come away from a four nil victory and you're kind of scratching your head on, well, how how did that happen? Um, and again, it was like the same with the Liverpool Norwich games. I was with a friend who supported Liverpool and Norwich at, at the weekend. And you're kind of seeing that happen again, Liverpool getting a, a late-ish victory. Are they, I mean, obviously there's one statistic which is absolutely incredible, which is the amount of wins they've had this season. But lots of people keep on saying, oh, well, Manchester City have been quite good. Is this kind of like one of those sort of grey areas where you can't, you just can't tell with statistics? Because when you watch Liverpool, they always feel dangerous, even when they're not playing particularly well. And I think this season you've watched Man City a few times. They've always felt like a little bit more fragile, a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I think that I think the difference is like, if you look at some like expected goals, City are ahead of Liverpool. You know, they've created better chances this season. But what they tended to do is go mad in a few games, like they beat Watford eight 0 and stuff. You know, they'll they'll just destroy teams, but then they'll also be a lot more susceptible at the back. And I think that is the big difference: is that Liverpool have almost kind of they've solved defending in a sense you know I, I kind of joked a few months ago last month about how in one season Liverpool could equal Arsenal's unbeaten record beat City's 100 point season and equal 
Manchester United's treble season all in one campaign. And then I, I sort of joked, but they, the one record they won't beat is is Chelsea's 15 goals conceded in 0405. But they've let in 15, and they don't seem to be letting in any more goals. I, obviously, I'm pretty sure they will let in at least one more goal before the end of the season. But um, you know that that is a difference. You know, City have let in almost we're one goal away from letting in twice as many goals as Liverpool this season. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing with Liverpool is they, they basically, there's no way to defend against them because if you block off the full-backs, that leaves space for the front three and, if, and vice versa. So, you know, they, they're very adaptive. Um, and I think they've got, a, you know, people talk about their midfield, but I think the, the contributions of, of people like, uh, Ronaldo, Fabinho, and Henderson, are, 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 you know, have been underestimated for for quite a long time. I think they're possibly getting more um, focus this season, particularly maybe Henderson. But um, yeah, I think you know they they do a really important job of kind of winning the ball back and covering for other positions. Um, and uh, yeah, they. I guess this season is the kind of. Um, the you know the icing on the cake of all the work that's gone into building that team. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, so Duncan, I've had you on for quite a while now. I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but there's another thing which I wanted to um, ask you about is Danny Ings and the potential for uh, Euro 2020 call up for England. Um, there's a few English strikers that seem to be out. Danny Ings, England. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would be, I'd be well up for it. Um, you know, if Ricky Lambert can go to the 2014 World Cup, then there's no reason that uh, Ings can't go to the to the Euros. Um, and like you say, there's, you know, there's not. I mean, Vardy's retired. Kane. I mean, it's going it's going to be a nightmare if he gets fit in kind of late May because they'll pick him and he's not going to be fit, is he? So. Um, and also, I think, you know, if maybe a year ago, six months ago, it would have sounded outlandish. But if you actually look at the way Ings plays, it, I think he'd actually suit the England team quite well. You know, we've had Kane in the last year or so kind of dropping deeper and allowing the likes of Sterling and Sancho and, and whoever to to push on. And Ings, in terms of his pressing and his work rate and his kind of overall kind of teamwork I think would, would fit in quite well I mean the the big I guess the big counter to that is that there's only two England games before the squad's announced um, so there's not much room for experimentation uh, but he's surely got to be in the squad and I can't really see many other options um, you know for, for Southgate to try so yeah I mean I think I would say he's almost certain to get into the squad now barring injury Um and then it's kind of up to him as to how, you know, whether he can kind of actually carve out a position. But it'd be an amazing story if he does, given, yeah. you know, all the problems he's had early, earlier in his career. Yeah, well, think, fingers crossed. I mean, I kind of almost hope that Dennings just continues this form to the end of the season, but doesn't get much of a run out for England. And then suddenly it all happens for him in the summer, because I don't want him to, to get injured on any of the, you know, international breaks that we have between now and the end of the season. But yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows what will happen? Hey, you know, Danny Ings scoring the winner for the Euro 2020s in um, Wembley sounds pretty good to me. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep yeah. our fingers crossed for that. Um, Duncan, b- before you go, um, I think you and I both share a love for cycling as well. Um, yes. Is, how do you manage this? So, like, I, I always think with football, 
when I started doing this podcast, there was a bit of a danger that when I was going to Southampton matches, I was looking too much at what was happening in the game and not actually enjoying the experience as a fan so much. Um, I guess you probably get that with football. Is cycling somewhere where you can just like totally let go and just watch it and not feel like you're at work? Or do you then suddenly get obsessed yeah. by all the statistics around cycling? How many watts? A little bit. I'm, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, the thing I like about cycling in some respects is you can, you know... It's a cliche about cycling, but you can go and you can go and ride the same roads that you know I've cycled up Alpe d'Huez and various other Bontu and various other ones as well. So it is that's pretty cool. I mean, I know you can technically play at St Mary's or Wembley or whatever, but it's a lot harder to do. But also, yeah, for me, it is it is the kind of I have it as a sport a bit like I had football when I was a kid in the sense of you know I just kind of watch it for for its. Uh, yeah for enjoyment and I there's people I follow on Twitter who kind of probably do similar things to to what I do for football and I kind of you know enjoy their content about cycling without the need to kind of you know get involved myself very often at least so um yeah I I, this I just kind of like the there's a kind of certain darkness and kind of euro-ness to cycling that I've always really loved you know the kind of you know, just sort of event like I don't know if you've been to something like the Tour of Flanders or Paris Bay, but just this kind of it's the most kind of Euro thing you can ever go to. Just sort of <laughs> you know gr- gruff Belgians just stood in the rain and just you know just journeyman pros with scars everywhere. You know, cycling has become in I think in the UK it's because of its popularity in recent years it's become a bit of a kind of like a middle class sort of thing but in you know in, in Europe Western Europe Belgium Holland it's very much a kind of working man's thing and it is there is a real I mean I think I would maintain there's a there's a semi-classic race um end of February I can't remember what it's called actually it's a really minor one but basically during the beast from the east a couple of years ago Philip Gilbert won it um it was like minus 10 and he wasn't wearing gloves so and I maintain it's the, it's the hardest thing I've ever seen any sportsman do. It's like, I don't know how he did it, but you know, it's just this kind of like rawness that I love. And uh, yeah, so and it also, if you go beyond, obviously a lot of people watch the Tour de France in the summer, but some of the kind of early season or late season events, you know, it is, I mean, I love kind of niche stuff and that, that is going pretty niche. So yeah. that's good. So, so for the, the the non-cycling inclined, what race would you um, encourage someone to watch this this spring then to get into cycling? So there's a thing in cycling called the Spring Classic, which is basically like a load of one-day races between March and, and the end of April. Um, possibly the the best. You've basically got a week where you've got the Tour of Flanders in in Belgium one Sunday, and then the following Sunday you've got Paris Bay, and probably Paris Bay is the best the best one to watch it's kind of the way i've always described it to people who aren't into cycling is it's it's kind of it's almost around the same weekend often but it's like the grand national but instead of horses it's men on on bikes and it's basically over all the cobbled roads in northern france and you know it's just carnage and crashes and it's kind of like um the hunger games you know you start off with 200 riders and maybe 50 of them if that make it to this bleak velodrome in Roubaix which is one of the most kind of run down towns in, in northern France and I did the amateur version last year actually did you? Um, Bloody hell. yeah and the, which is the day before the actual pro race and yeah it's definitely some of those cobbled roads there's a famous one called the Arenberg and it was you know I'd read stuff about oh it's really it's ridiculously hard and it honestly it was like it went from smooth tarmac to what 
I felt like the start of Saving Private Ryan within like two seconds. <laughs> and pe- people were just flying off into into Verge, and there was a guy in front of me. Just I heard his collarbone snap oh. and the bikes breaking. It was just like, and I looked back at afterwards on Strava or whatever. And it had taken me, I don't know, four minutes, 50 or something to do this stretch of, of cobbles. And I, to me, it could have been, it's considered 10 seconds or two hours. I wouldn't have been able to argue because, yes, time both sped up and slowed down. So, yeah, that, that race is particularly good, I'd say. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, yeah, big, big recommendation there. Um, there's actually a chap from uh, the cycling club I used to ride with when I lived in London. Uh, he's now in Team Sky Tay. Gehagenhart, who I actually think could be, he could be quite a good shout for a spring classic. Maybe not this year. I think he needs to harden up a bit, get a little bit older, a little bit more wily. But um, I think he started the season pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got to say the one time I went riding with him, it was utterly brutal. We um, (laughs) we went out at at, at incredible speed. um, Stopped at the cafe. He went and did like an extra loop of about. 30 odd miles and then overtook everyone in the cycling club on the way back having done the extra <laughs> on the way back into London and that was just a gentle yeah. ride for him it's, it's, a, it's what, a different level isn't it I mean it's the same I mean I've played five or so football with some ex-pros as well like when, no matter the sport really just that it's when you realise the difference in, in quality between you know an amateur and a, and a professional is it's pretty uh, it can be pretty soul destroying when you, you know I've seen I've I've cycled with out of out of shape ex pros and you know they're still just they're still really good. So yeah, yeah. All right, brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Duncan. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, if thank people you. want to hear more from you, I presume they should tune into the Totally Football Show with with James Richardson. But they can also find you on Twitter at Oily Sailor. Yeah. Um, and Correct. if they if they want to take a statistical journey through the history of football they can pick up your your book at any good bookstore indeed yeah um well brilliant thank you very much duncan and um thank uh, you do let us know listeners what you thought of the episode saints fc podcast at gmail.com or at saints fc podcast on twitter uh we'll see you next time 